You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. No story that I could tell would be anything except for mortifying when it deals with the death, the kidnapping, or the sexual assault of a child. This week's case unfortunately deals with all three of those things and centers around a sexual predator who was known to police and who had served time previously for sexually assaulting minors. It took eight years and a lot of elaborate work for the police to finally get their man, and hopefully this time he won't ever get out of prison, although his sentence certainly does allow for it. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 112 of Gone But Never Forgotten, another example of why we should have mandatory sex offender registries, the murder of Daniel Morcombe. Daniel James Morcombe was born to his parents, Bruce and Denise Morcombe, on December 19th of 1989 in Melbourne, Australia. Daniel was one of three children to the couple, including his identical twin brother, Bradley, and his other brother, Dean. The family of five all lived together and grew up in what was, to everyone, a happy and loving family home on the Sunshine Coast, of Queensland, Australia. Growing up, Daniel developed a very strong love and adoration for animals of all shapes and sizes, and for that reason, the Morcombs had many animals at their home, including a pony that was literally the love of Daniel's life. Daniel was known in his community as a helpful child who was always willing to help anyone with anything and a boy that was always excited and willing to help pick fruit when harvest time came. Neighbors would say that Daniel was helpful, but that he was also quiet and often reserved and kept to himself while minding his manners. On December 7th of 2003, Daniel would be helping with that exact chore, helping to harvest passion fruit with his brothers and four neighbors in their community. When the work was done, Daniel received his pay and he made the decision that he wanted to spend his money on gifts for his family for Christmas, which was quickly approaching. He also intended to get himself a haircut. 
His plan was to take the city bus to the Sunshine Plaza, which was a shopping center. This was something that he had done previously on a number of occasions, and so his parents were okay with his plan and allowed him to go. The bus stop was just over a kilometer from his family's home, and Daniel made his way to the stop on Namber Connection Road. Unbeknownst to everyone else, however, the particular bus route that Daniel needed to take was having issues. The bus that was supposed to arrive at the stop and pick up Daniel never made it because the bus had broken down earlier on in the route. Daniel had planned to catch the bus at 1.35pm, and when the bus did not arrive, he stayed at the stop, leaving him standing under the Keel Mountain Road overpass. Witnesses said that they had seen Daniel at approximately 2.10pm under the overpass by the stop that he had intended to wait at. As far as the bus issues, it was reported that there was a replacement bus that was put onto the route for the bus that had broken down, but the stop that Daniel was standing at was actually recognized as an unofficial stop, meaning that it wasn't a planned stop for the bus on its route. Because the bus was already running behind schedule, the bus continued on past the stop where Daniel was standing and did not stop to pick up the young 13-year-old boy. Perhaps the saddest part was that the bus driver had even seen Daniel standing at the stop. He even radioed and made a note of the young boy at the bus stop to ensure that the following bus would stop and pick up Daniel. Witnesses said around this time that they had seen Daniel talking to a man or two other men, depending on the witness report, on the side of the street. When the next bus came by the stop, only three minutes later, mind you, neither Daniel nor the man or men that he had been speaking to were at the stop or anywhere in sight. Daniel had last been seen wearing a pair of navy blue long shorts, a red billabong t-shirt, and a pair of globe shoes. He had been carrying his wallet and approximately $100 in cash. Bruce and Denise, Daniel's parents, would come home from a work function in Brisbane at roughly 4 p.m., and Denise decided to go to the bus stop to pick up Daniel, who she assumed would be getting off the bus at 4.30 p.m., which was the scheduled stop time. She would again return to the bus stop at 5.30 p.m., and she believed that that was the last bus that would leave Sunshine Plaza. When Daniel didn't get off the bus, both of his parents would go to Sunshine Plaza together to look for him. After finding nothing in the searches for their son, Bruce and Denise decided that they needed to go to the police straight away, and they went to the Mariachador police station to report Daniel as missing at approximately 7.30 p.m. Daniel's parents would speak with a sergeant, Robbie Munn, for approximately 20 minutes. They would relay what Daniel looked like, what he had been wearing, and they also relayed the fact that this was very out of character for Daniel. In the past, if Daniel knew that he was running late or that he might miss a bus, he always called his parents. 
This time, they had no contact with him at all. They also told Sergeant Mun that there had been no arguments at all at home and that everything was good. This was obviously backed up by the fact that he was going to the store to buy gifts for his family. As we hear far too often in cases like this one, though, none of that seemed to matter. Sergeant Munn, as the police often do, advised Bruce and Denise to go home and said that he believed that this was just a misunderstanding and that Daniel would certainly show up in time. He said that he would not be listing Daniel as a missing person at that time. Bruce and Denise, of course, went home and started to call everyone that they could, friends, family members, anyone that they could think of to see if anyone had seen Daniel. The family also searched around their own property to see if perhaps Daniel was caught up in something at the house and nobody had known. All of that, of course, was for naught. Nobody had seen Daniel and nobody could find Daniel. Sergeant Munn called Bruce and Denise twice that night once at 10 p.m. and once again at 10.40 p.m. on the night that Daniel had gone missing. Both times he was checking in to see if they had heard from Daniel or if they had found Daniel, and both times he was of course told that they had not heard anything about him or from him. At approximately 11 p.m. they would receive a call from Senior Constable Campbell from the Palmwoods Police. He told them to come to the Palmwoods Police Station when it opened at 8 a.m. the following morning to file an official missing persons report. Can you imagine being Daniel's parents here? It, it breaks my heart every single time that we hear this in a case, and here it is again. Bruce would say that he agreed to that, but that he felt as though his son being missing was not being treated in a professional or a serious manner, and how can you blame him for feeling that way? These police officers and the entire institution is supposed to be there for citizens in situations just like this one. This is what the system is supposed to be for. A 13-year-old boy goes missing, and all we ever hear about is how those first hours are critical to find and bring missing people home. And yet, here is this family who undoubtedly are beside themselves at home here, and they're told to come in first thing the next morning, when it is getting close to already 24 hours already since Daniel had been last seen. I don't know how this still happens so often. The next morning, of course, they were banging down that door at 8 a.m., and they would file their official missing persons report with Sergeant Davidson, taking every detail possible. He would also establish very early on by calling Sunbus, the company that operated the buses that Daniel was to have taken, that a boy matching Daniel's description was in fact seen at the Keel Mountain Overpass. The investigation was underway. At that time, Sunbus also told Sergeant Davidson that Daniel had been seen in the presence of at least one other man 
when he was spotted by the bus driver at that bus stop. I should mention here, in fairness, that the police didn't believe that the way that they acted or did not act before they gathered this information was wrong until they heard about the witnesses and about the man or men talking to Daniel, they had no reason at all to believe that there was foul play possibly involved in this case. And also, to be fair, when the disappearance started to be investigated, it did quickly become one of the most extensively investigated crimes in the history of Queensland. Those investigations included state emergency service searches in the entire area where the incident took place, police divers who were activated for water searches, Daniel's bank account was monitored for activity before and after he had disappeared to see if he could be placed anywhere after he was seen at the overpass. All sightings of Daniel before and after his disappearance were thoroughly investigated, as were any details that came out about vehicles in the area of the bus stop when Daniel had gone missing. There's little denying that once the police realized here that this might be a case with foul play, they hit the ground running. The police also started to investigate any known sex offenders that lived in the area, or had links to the area, in an attempt to try and rule some people of interest out as quickly as possible. All in all, there were more than 60 officers working Daniel's disappearance and trying to find any evidence. Unfortunately, not much was coming to light. On December 14th, the police would hold a reenactment under the Keel Mountain Road overpass to try and get a better understanding of what might have happened based on the little evidence and eyewitness testimony that they had. The investigation also started to focus in on a blue sedan that was described by a witness as being seen at the scene and possibly driven by the man that was talking to Daniel. Unfortunately, no evidence was to be found. Daniel was not to be found, and over time investigators dwindled and the case went cold. It certainly wasn't that there was a lack of interest in Daniel's case and getting this case solved. It just seemed that every single lead came to another dead end. The police had people of interest, but without evidence, there wasn't a lot that they could do. Five years after Daniel had disappeared, there were $1 million in reward money available for answers in this case. $250,000 from the government and $750,000 that was donated privately. In November of 2004, the police would release the three sketches that were based off of witness accounts and CCTV of a man that was seen near Daniel while he was waiting for his bus. In February of 2005, Bruce and Denise would launch the Daniel Morcombe Foundation, which I will discuss at the end of the episode. But the foundation's main goal is to push and continue pushing 
a message of child safety. On May 6th of 2009, Bruce and Denise actually unveiled a life-sized model that was made out of clay of the suspect in the sketches in their appeal to find the man and hopefully finally find answers after nearly six years of none. The model was placed at the spot where Daniel had disappeared, and within just a few days, this model had been attributed to at least 300 new tips. That private reward money of $750,000 expired at midnight on May 31st of 2009. The following day, the Seven Network, which is and was one of the major Australian free-to-air television channels, put out a report that listed a man who was a known pedophile as a person of interest in this case. The man was Douglas Jackaway. He had been in custody and he had been released just a month before Daniel had gone missing. The release of a name like this, as you can imagine, set off a firestorm. First of all, there were certainly witch hunters out for Douglas, but further to that, the publicity on Douglas and the case in such a negative manner was certainly detrimental to the family, to the investigation, and really to everyone that was involved. Civil liberties groups actually stepped up here and started to call for new laws that would prevent the media from releasing names like this of people who may or may not be linked to a criminal case. Suffice to say, regardless of what the Seven Network intended by releasing a name, they helped to take eyes and put them somewhere else, somewhere that would wind up not being fruitful to the case at all in the end. In July of 2009, a coronial inquest was called for by Daniel's parents. Now, a coronial inquest is a public hearing that's held in order to piece together a likely cause of death and the circumstances surrounding that death. This was a means for Daniel's family, as well as the public, to get a better look at what the police had been doing and likely find out a lot of details that had not previously been released. That inquest would be held between October of 2010 and April of 2011. One of the main points of interest for Daniel's family were varying reports that several criminals had come forward and told police who had killed Daniel. Not long after that inquest ended in April of 2011, the case would finally be broken open and solved on August 13th of 2011. The man at the center of the investigation at that point was Brett Peter Cowan. Brett was born on September 18th of 1969 in Bunbury, Western Australia. He was born into a family that was raised Catholic, but that for all intents and purposes was seen as a good family overall. Brett was said to be a handful, however, both at school for his teachers and fellow students, and at home with his mom. 
He dropped out of high school in grade 10 and never really held down jobs for long or found a place where he fit in in society for very long. Instead, he started getting involved in petty crimes and he also became addicted to drugs like LSD, cocaine, and methamphetamines. Brett would later say that drugs were a major part of his problem. He said that drugs mess up your inhibitions and skew your boundaries. Unfortunately, as I'm sure you're aware, Brett's crimes did escalate. On December 5th of 1987, when Brett was only 18 years old, He was performing community service for previous crimes at a public park in Brisbane when he took a seven-year-old child from the park and into the washroom where he would rape that young child. The incident didn't even seem to phase Brett because after he had committed that indecent act, he sat in the child care center that he did maintenance work at and watched television casually as though Nothing had happened. Brett would be sentenced to two years in prison for that rape in 1989, but he only served one year, getting out again in 1990. In September of 1993, Brett was living in a caravan park with his girlfriend when he lured a six-year-old boy into an abandoned yard and sexually assaulted him as well. As you can clearly see, whether it was drugs or just an awful human being, Brett clearly had no inhibitions. Not only did Brett sexually assault this even younger child, he also left the child alone in an abandoned car in the bush with a punctured lung because of the ferocity of the assault on that child. That young boy did heroically manage to get to a gas station so that he could get help. The young boy was in really bad shape, and police actually believed at first that he had been hit by a car because of the physical condition that he was in. Police obviously found what they were dealing with and asked residents of the caravan park to give DNA samples. The only person in that park who did not give a DNA sample, you guessed it, it was Brett. When police found that out and they looked into his past, they confronted Brett and he admitted to the sexual assault and physical assault of that six-year-old boy. In 1994, Brett Cowan was sentenced to seven years in jail for charges of grievous harm, deprivation of liberty, and gross indecency. Many of the more severe charges, though, against Brett were dropped before his trial, such as attempted murder and rape. Brett was only required to be in jail for three and a half years. While Brett was in jail, there was a psychological test done on him, and he was found to, quite frankly, be a frightening man, which I guess... By this point, we already see. The test showed that Brett was a pathological liar and that he was just a parasite on everyone in his life. Psychologists also said that Brett was not even fully aware of the gravity of the crimes that he had committed. He had actually said that he did not believe 
that his victims would ever report the rapes because he believed that they had enjoyed them. Can you imagine the absolute gall of this human being to to force himself on two young boys at this point, two boys that were under the age of eight years old and believe that they had enjoyed having their innocence taken at an age where they certainly had no idea what was even going on. That mindset is frightening. In 1997, Brett would again be released from jail in spite of all of that. Brett said that he desired to enter rehab, and he said that he realized that his sexual deviancy was his problem. Brett would enter a sexual offenders treatment program, move in with his aunt and uncle, who were pastors on the Sunshine Coast, and he became, or said he became, a reformed Christian. Brett would even get married in 1999 to a woman named Tracy Lee Moncrief that he had met through his church, and the two actually had two children together. Brett had no run-ins with the law at all during this time, seemingly proving to many that even some incredibly awful people can reform, and then later proving that sometimes things are too good to be true. Brett and Tracy were divorced in 2004, and Brett left the church in 2003. On December 7th of 2003, you'll remember, that's when Daniel Morcombe went missing. Brett was actually one of the first sexual offenders that was reached out to when police started to comb the area. Brett had an extensive criminal history, as we discussed, He also lived close to where Daniel was last known to be, and of course, he was a sexual offender and a predator. When he was first interviewed, just days after Daniel had gone missing, Brett told police that he had nothing to do with the disappearance. Some officers believed from that very first encounter, though, that Brett was the man that they were looking for. In July 2005, an interview with police again, Brett was asked point-blank if he would admit to being involved in the disappearance of Daniel, if he had been a part of it. Coyly, Brett responded by saying, Probably not. During the aforementioned inquest into the believed death of Daniel Morcombe, Brett was even brought in and interviewed again as long as a long-standing person of interest. Brett would say that he had driven by the area where Daniel had gone missing, and he said that he had been driving by to purchase a mulcher, and then he had gone to see his marijuana dealers. Police, though, would later find out that his drug dealers were not available at the time that Brett said they were, and thus Brett was again lying. Police finally realized that they believed wholeheartedly that Brett was the man behind the disappearance of Daniel, and so they decided to use a technique that had been used here in Canada and that we've talked about on this podcast before, the Mr. Big Sting. For any listeners who are new to the concept, a Mr. Big Sting is when a lot of time 
police presence and, of course, police resources are put into an elaborate scheme to try and get an admittance of guilt from a suspect. It's difficult to do, and it's difficult to utilize in court, as we've discussed in the past. Officers would work together and enlist Brett slowly into a crime organization with a series of escalating fictional crimes like theft, drugs, and things of that nature. In April of 2011, Brett was befriended by an undercover officer on a flight to Perth, Australia. The person that Brett met on that plane was Paul Fitzsimmons, or Fitzy. On that flight, the two talked and they became fast friends. Over the following few months, Brett was put through the ringer to prove that he was worth the time of the criminal organization. He was initiated through a series of fake criminal scenarios that Brett believed to be real. Around this time, Brett was served with a subpoena because of the falseness of his alibi in the Daniel Morcombe case, and he was also approached by another undercover officer who was a part of the sting. This officer told Brett that he only wanted to help him after Brett had already told everyone that he had nothing to do with the case at all. Brett would finally speak up here, and he admitted to his involvement in the abduction of Daniel Morcombe, and his confession was captured on video. He admitted that he went to purchase the mulcher that day and that he had parked his car at a nearby church when he saw Daniel standing alone. He said that he walked over to Daniel and told him that he was going to the shopping center. He asked Daniel if he wanted a ride, and instead of taking Daniel to the shopping center, he had taken him to a house with the intention of sexually assaulting him. Brett said that he did not molest him, however, because Daniel had freaked out and started to fight back, and Brett had grabbed him and choked him to death. Brett said that he had then put Daniel's body into his car, and he drove the car to a nearby old sand mining site. To further prove that he was telling the truth to his, quote, crime bosses, Brett would then lead the undercover officers to the site where he said that he had left Daniel's remains. On August 13th of 2011, Brett Cowan was arrested at that site and was taken into custody and charged with the murder of Daniel Morcombe and other offenses which included child stealing, deprivation of liberty, indecent treatment of a child under 16, and interfering with a corpse. On August 21st of 2011, two shoes and three human bones were found at a search site at Glasshouse Mountains, which was where Brett had led the police. The shoes were similar to the ones that Daniel was described to be wearing when he disappeared. There were also underwear and a belt found at the same site. By the end of the investigation at that site, 17 human bones had been found. All of those bones were confirmed to belong to Daniel Morcombe. The funeral for Daniel Morcombe would be held on December 7th of 2012, on the nine-year anniversary of his death. The funeral was attended by more than 2,000 people. 
On February 7th of 2013, Brett Cowan was ordered to trial, and he was charged with murder, indecently dealing with a child under the age of 16, and improperly dealing with a corpse. The trial officially started on February 10th of 2014. The centerpiece of the case was, of course, Brett's videotaped confession. Brett said that he only confessed because he was told that the upcoming jobs would pay him a lot of money. The prosecution did not hide or deny the fact that they had offered Brett a lot of money for future jobs. After 166 witnesses testified, though, and over 200 exhibits were entered as evidence, the prosecution would close their case on March 7th, after one month. Brett pled not guilty and refused to give any evidence or testimony at the trial. Brett only said that he had no remorse for what he had done. On March 13th, Brett Peter Cowan was found guilty on all counts against him. And the next day, on March 14th, 2014, Brett was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years served. Judge Rosalind Atkinson also said that she did not believe that he should be released in 20 years' time either. She believed that he would always be a threat to reoffend. Brett was also sentenced to three and a half years for the indecency charge and two additional years for improperly dealing with a corpse. Both of those sentences, though, will run concurrent. Brett would, of course, appeal his sentence, and he tried to have the entire sentence overturned. The argument still was that the Mr. Big Sting should not have been admissible in court. On May 21st of 2015, Brett's appeal was dismissed. There was also an appeal by former Attorney General Jared Blage to have Brett's sentence increased. That, too, was dismissed. And so, we have the story of two people here. A young man who had his entire life ahead of him and who seemed to be responsible, polite, respectful, and just a good boy. Things that we all can only hope to see from our own children. That boy was going to purchase gifts for his family when he was selected, kidnapped, and murdered by a man with a long streak of being a monster. This was a man who really should not have ever been back on the streets in the first place. A career criminal, a career sexual offender, and a career pedophile. These two people met on December 7th of 2003 in the most unfortunate of meetings. A series of events caused Daniel Marcombe to become prey for a predator who even still might see the light of day and freedom once more. As sad as that this case is, and as preventable as the outcome could have been, I want to try and focus on something positive to finish the episode. I mentioned it earlier, the Daniel Morcombe Foundation. 
The foundation was started by Daniel's family, and it is committed to educating children about personal safety and to raising awareness throughout all of Australia of the dangers of predatory criminals. Each year, there is a Day for Daniel held to commemorate Daniel's disappearance to help provide awareness of the vulnerability of children. On that day, people are encouraged to wear red, the color of shirt that Daniel was wearing when he went missing. The Daniel Morcombe Foundation provides personal child safety education to children and to young people to prevent abuse and to promote lifelong health and well-being. They support educators, they support parents, and they support any carers through the provision of resources and education. And they also directly support young victims of crime. It is really impressive to me when a family is able to stand up, rise up really, and fight back even in the face of tremendous, the worst tragedy that anyone could imagine. Bruce and Denise truly are heroes, and they have helped so many people in the wake of the loss of one of their sons. In fact, Daniel's entire family has risen up and turned tragedy into love, which is amazing, and as we all know, that's rare to see. I hope and pray for nothing but the best for that entire family. One thing that did stand out to me in this case as I researched it, likely because of the backdrop again of the holiday season and of all of that craziness, was the fact that if that bus would have only stopped to pick up Daniel, how much behind schedule more would that have taken it? And would Daniel be alive today? You have to believe that yes, Daniel would still be alive if that bus had have stopped. Things would have been so different. Let me be clear. I'm not blaming the bus driver in this situation. Maybe just using it as an example of a larger issue in our world. Every small detail can be life-changing, and in this case it certainly was. As people in every aspect, we need to start working together and fighting together. The world around us is changing, and many things are getting harder. It's becoming easier to be angry or not to care about other people. It's routine to rush everywhere and to not even notice what's happening around you. And we need to change that. Every week, I encourage all of you listeners to be a part of the solution and to be better. And I think that this is a great example of that. Notice your fellow human beings around you and have some love. Have some compassion. And maybe stop rushing for one moment. You never know when the smallest act of kindness could be the difference in someone's day, week, month, year, or even lifetime. I think I'll end it there this week on a super sentimental note. Thank you for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. See you next time.